I am Aiden Connolly, and with me are the boys, Brandon and Tom, and welcome to the Three Musketeers podcast. Thanks for joining us as we take on the renowned work of Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, and today we'll be covering Vonnegut's approach to the apparent obsession of war in society at the same time pairs with a widespread feeling of indifference. Join us in a conversation about how Vonnegut's anti-war sentiment morphs into a statement about the realities of war that is more relevant than ever. So the first thing we want to look at when we're talking about Slaughterhouse-Five is how Vonnegut's uncertainty about the war eventually develops into a strong anti-war sentiment. And um, when he kind of, obviously he was in the war, he was a prisoner of war in Dresden as we went over kind of at the start of the class in the introduction of the book. And so he's definitely got his own feelings about it, but it's almost like he doesn't establish them to the reader until maybe when he starts the story and actually gets into the details because it's like he's very hazy about what he's going to write about he just keeps telling everyone oh what's your next book going to be on it's going to be a war a, a war book so i feel like he's not very confident um in his writing especially his war book uh especially near the end of chapter one um he talks about how he feels that his book is a failure and how it was written by a pillar of salt. So yeah, he's not I think, really sure about it. I feel like he mm-hmm. only says that because he he thinks everyone has these expectations of insane war stories, like that, which we'll get into mm-hmm. later. But like everyone's vision of war is like this crazy big, like awesome battles, all the war books that are cool, like SEAL Team Six taken down, whatever. And he was kind of just like he knew he was gonna write about a war, but it, he thought it'd be awful. And he kind of runs around everywhere trying to collect war stories, but he struggles doing it. So it's like that's kind of why I feel like he saw it as a failure almost. Right. And then when he even runs into Bernard V. O'Hara's wife and she tells him like, oh, you're just going to portray him as like Frank Sinatra and John Wayne instead of like the babies that you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So before that, I, I mean, he was talking about he is obviously anti-war, but he also sees the wars as, as inevitable, which like mm-hmm. in chat or on page three, he talks about how um, he had a conversation and glaciers kind of came up. They said he wrote, why don't you write an anti-glacier book instead? What he meant, of course, was that there would always be wars, that they were as easy to stop as glaciers. I believe that, too. And for me, I was really kind of tripping up on this because I always thought anti-war people are like, okay, there's always another way. There's always peace. You don't have to go to war. And I was like, well, if he's against the war and he sees it as inevitable, how is he going to, like, what takes he going to have on Kind of contradictory. Mm. But um, obviously he kind of, he when he, when he runs into Bernard V. O'Hare and one of his drinking binges, which are very uh, often, it seems like, it seems like it kind of, his interaction, not with Bernard, but with his wife actually solidifies what he's going to do. Right, right. 
because there you go. go ahead. All right. Well, I, I was wondering like what you guys thought. I was kind of intrigued about her uh her like awful attitude towards towards him, like not being super passive and like angrily filling up her coke and stuff like that and stamping out. So what did you guys think? about that and eventually her statement later which we'll read in a second um i think it was pretty important to vani as it like helped him find his purpose and meaning in the book because mm-hmm. you know the stuff she said to him uh, made him realize that like that he needs to write about like the truths of the war and not just yeah. like what everyone thinks it should be mm-hmm. right okay and like how he um oh sorry um how he dedicates the book to her and the taxi driver that's kind of they like kind of built that confidence like you were saying earlier Aiden and Brandon like he didn't have the confidence but they kind of guided him the right way because mm-hmm. when he went he went into Bernard V. O'Hare's house he literally sat down with him hoping for war stories and uh he the wife kind of saw that and knew what the stigma of war stories were and how they were all badass and everything so she says when she kind of finally explodes on him, um, O'Hare, Mary O'Hare actually says, you'll pretend you were men instead of babies and you'll be played in the movies by Frank Sinatra and John Wayne or some other glamorous, war-loving, dirty old men. And war will just look wonderful. So we'll have a lot more of them. And they'll be fought by babies like the babies upstairs. So she kind of, she took offense to that saying like, well, my I don't want you guys glorifying war so that my kids will eventually have to fight another one. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, and I think that it, might be part of the reason why he, like, dedicates the book to her. Because he, like, agrees with what she's saying and how, you know, and, like, the impact it has on him. Similar yeah, to, like, the taxi driver. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to let them down and, like, present this book that's so, like, for war and then made, like, war seem glorified. Yeah, I think he wanted, I, I feel like he wanted all along, he never wanted to glorify war because he's always, he's anti-war, obviously, as a, mm. as a soldier, because he does mention earlier that the people who hate war the most are the ones who are in it. So he definitely is, like, against war. So I think this just, I, like, guided him, as you guys said, to how he would explain how he was against the war, which was laying out the boring otherwise like people would consider boring realities of it and what happened with billy and weary as like the book progresses so i mean but what do you kind of building off of how you guys talked about dedicating the book to mary why do you think that he uh dedicated the book to the taxi driver well at the beginning of chapter one uh the taxi driver, he explains how, like, he was a prisoner of war, like, by the Americans. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like, later he writes, like, a postcard uh, to him, like, uh, saying, like, Happy Christmas or Merry Christmas. And he wished them, like, all the best. Mm-hmm. And they, like, like, we think of, like, enemies to be, or, like, we think they'd be enemies and they'd be, like, so against each other. But, like, they're, like, showing sympathy and, like, love for each other. Yeah. And going off what you said, Brandon... In that mm-hmm. Christmas letter, he says, "We'll meet. I hope we'll meet again in a world of peace and freedom." Um, I think that's probably why he dedicated to him because of like what Mary O'Hara said to him about like wanting to go an anti-war book so that 
we create kind of a world more more like wanting peace and freedom instead of mm -hmm. glorifying war and together they kind of helped them develop that anti-war sentiment that we're going to see yeah. throughout the book it was like establishing that sympathy that like they were both prisoners of war they both went through these horrific like tragedies and experiences and that kind of made a link to them and and i guess solidified the whole idea of we're all the same the human race is one family and that's probably really what what kind of drove the more emotional factor behind it rather than the realistic that they were babies during the war like mary kind of pointed out so i think those as you guys said they played in like tandem to uh to really make this book absolutely and like I originally thought since they were only mentioned a few times and they don't seem like they'll be mentioned again, maybe they will, but that they're like super insignificant. But when you see what meaning they kind of drove, it completely talks about, it kind of speaks to what they meant to Kurt and, and how much, how much of an impact they have on his stories. Yeah, definitely. Right. Before we get into one of our next topics, a quick word from one of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Have you ever wanted to smash a communist bastard's head in with a hatchet? Well, you don't need to be deployed to kill what the American media has vilified all of your life. Help perpetuate the misconceptions of war by experiencing what all soldiers dream of in the comfort of your home. Kill terrorists, along with occasional innocent casualties among them, and defend democracy. Okay, so kind of bringing back what we talked about or touched on before about how Vonnegut is obviously very anti-war and how he contradicts the general assumptions that people have about it and obviously these these assumptions are established through kind of the media or what we consume at home because we, we never really see the real truth in seeing more so i mean i think it's important to lay out why and how we formed our opinions about these awesome battles and kind of glorifying war so um i know one thing that I do on a daily basis, especially during quarantine, is play Call of Duty. And I that is just the epitome of glorifying war. Right. Like you are just running around like badass music playing a guitar, like a super electric guitar. You're running around and and like you get to see replays of just murdering people basically. You get shot and the times and still live. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, you, you get shot, you just eat the bullets, you keep going, and then you kill the last person and there's some insane final replay. Everyone's like going crazy, how much they loved it, stuff like that. And then obviously, how do you guys say you'd see it in other way, like media? Throughout um, the... Probably through like movies and shows. Like every time I see uh, soldiers in movies or shows, I see them depicted with like huge muscles, tattoos, and like clips of ammo. 
wrapped around their bodies, like ready yeah, to fight. Yeah, like Terminator. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not really how it goes in real life. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you ever watch those, like, drone attacks that they show on TV? They make it seem like it's just a target. And you're like, oh, yeah. Villain, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's actually, like, innocent people sometimes get hurt. Yeah. And they don't show that. They make it sound like a victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like things like the SEAL Team 6 movies, which, obviously, they're true stories, but they completely distort. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm sure the people producing the movies haven't been to war and they don't know exactly how everything goes. And even if they did, why would they want to show everyone the tragedies of it? So, I mean, that kind of, I mean, as we said, Vonnegut just completely disregards all that and goes through his own stories, which he says are partly true or mostly true, especially the war parts. So I can, that kind of brings us into how he, how he contradicts the general opinions of war through his like specific characters. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> even in like his, he makes his own personal anecdote. He says like the nicest veterans, I thought the kindest ones and the funniest ones are the ones that hated the war the most and they're the ones who really fought. <clears throat> so that's just basing off what we just said. I mean, it's the exact opposite, right? You see all these guys in the video games, in the movies, they're like badass guys. Mm-hmm. But then really in reality, these guys hate the war. Mm-hmm. They're really nice guys, and they don't want to fight any more wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Billy's like an example of um of what you've been saying, Gleason. Like in the book, he's depicted as like weak. He's unprepared, and he's like a little depressed, and he's not what like a typical soldier would be. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like I pic- I picture him just dragging his feet, not wanting to be there at all. Obviously, they're not in the best situation as they're not even with their regiment or anything. It's just they're kind of runaways and they're trying to make it out. But like they are in no way extremely confident or very like just like ambitious to fight, like pick up. Even though I think Weary, he like he wants that to be the truth because when he was at home, this is what he envisioned. He wants to be like he, they even talked about his story about how he uh how we wanted to go back and tell everyone about the three musketeers, which obviously mm-hmm. we named our awesome podcast after, but like he wanted, he was so delusional that he wanted this war story and he tried so hard to get it. Yeah. He's trying to like live out his own personal fantasy, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really go as planned in the book. Yeah. Like the two guys that he calls his three musketeers, when he says that they like, they never heard of the three musketeers name before he said that. And then they just, they ditched the two, Weary and Billy. Like, yeah. much of a three musketeer team that was. Yeah, another thing I kind of want to, I, I thought was kind of interesting, was the relationship between Billy and Weary. Weary being only 18 and still, like, acting like the alpha male because he wanted <laughs> so bad to be one, obviously. So, I mean, the dynamic between them, Weary literally dragging Billy around, <laughs> not because he was he did not want to be there almost killing him on the when he when he went back to get him but uh like that was just very interesting to me because i would never have pictured that so yeah and yeah you've got billy he's walking around like he wished people would just leave him alone and he continues to say you guys go on without me but then Mm -hmm. he keeps coming back he wants to be that hero 
and yes. visions in his own stories, like you said. Exactly, exactly. Because he was, I mean, they talk about his background. It's, it's pretty sad. Like, I mean, okay. he's a weird guy. He's got that, he's got that, uh, that weird picture of a pony. And then he's also got these like weird knives. But still, I mean, he went, they, he talked about how he was abandoned, always abandoned. And it was one of those stories about he was like a big bully because he, he's a big dude. But he was a bully only because people didn't treat him right. So, I mean, it, he, he was vulnerable on the inside, obviously, which, I mean, once again, a vulnerable soldier. What's what's that? A book centered around a vulnerable soldier? Like, that just never happens. Yeah, he was way ahead of his time in thinking that. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of what do you guys think about I mean, we kind of talked about how the German soldiers who cap who captured them. I guess. What do you think about them and what they kind of displayed? Yeah, they were absolutely contradictions to what anyone would have thought. I mean, at the at the end of chapter two, you got the soldiers are coming in with like these really loud dogs, and they're tracing through like the forest and the snow and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it's real, they set a real, like, scary tone in there. But then mm-hmm. in the beginning of the third chapter, we see that it's just two old guys and then two real young guys. He says the old guys are droolers <clears throat> as teethless as carf. And then the young boys were in their teens. And the German shepherd, not even like some pit bull or some, some cop dog that you would see in TV, and her name is Princess. Yeah, well, I think it's even better that because German shepherds are like in the video games, like they there are kind of the the big dogs that go after everything. But I think it's better than it is a German shepherd. But it's got its tail between its le- or her legs, and her name's Princess. Like it, she's not one to rip someone's throat out. And especially those farmers. The reality is, in war, obviously, a draft calls on literally everyone. And I'm sure the German, these German farmers were just pulled out of their hometowns, forced to fight. So they're, they don't, they're not like some war machines that are ready to just mow over everyone. They're like just normal people. Right. Everyday guys. I, I thought it was interesting how, um, like, they, like, showed Billy, or the German sh- soldiers showed Billy as if he was, like, captured. And it like seemed pretty set up and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When he was when he was in the bushes, like forced him to go in the bush. Yeah, yeah that was like mm-hmm. I mean, it kinda of plays into just the whole thing of propaganda. But I mean, that's basically what everything is. I'm everyone glorifying war. I mean, it is a form of propaganda. And this was just this was more, I guess, used to encourage the people at home saying, Oh, we've got the we've got the Americans on their knees. They're they're crawling out of bushes. Even though Billy was like smiling while he while he got that picture taken, but it was kind of just a big thing of how it was totally set up and how these pictures and depictions are not representative of, of the true battle. Yeah, they kind of want to be like heroic and how like, look, we got look, we just captured all these guys, but in reality, they just set the whole thing mm-hmm. up. Like, um, also when they went to the the prisoner of war house, kind of when they were sitting in there, and like, I mean, Vonnegut just wrote quickly. It was a quick mention, but it's still pretty significant how everyone was just, like, completely tired, exhausted, and they had no war stories. That was just 
his his referral to war stories as if like they're not real, like they're never actually present. That kind of really just brings it all back about how like the idea of war is completely misrepresented. Right. Absolutely agree. And one more thing I kind of wanted to mention, this is kind of going back to the start um, about how in our own lives we see war uh, represented. And I was, you know, those army commercials that are like, like these dudes coming out of helicopters all like running and stuff in, in like the Middle East or whatever. Like this is, it's kind of like Weary's dream basically. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was, uh. I was on Reddit, which is obviously a social media platform, and this, there's subreddits, which are uh, like they're individual things talking about certain subjects. And I was in this modern warfare one, and I press on it, and as I'm scrolling through, you, I see an advertisement for joining the army, which is like another just like why they're advertising the complete misrepresentation of war because they know it'll get people to sign up to go. It's like it's like everyone's a weary. They're like they're they talk it up so much that oh this can't be bad. It's just we're gonna go have some awesome memorable fights. Not like PTSD or anything. They make it look like (coughs) they advertise right to our fantasies, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned uh, PTSD because um in chapter three it almost seems like Billy like has a mental illness. Um, he has like problems like sleeping he has like sleep disorders or something mm-hmm. he like falls asleep uh when he's with a patient mm-hmm. and uh he hears like a siren like indicating that it's noon but he mistakes it for like like maybe a start like the start of world war three mm-hmm. he gets frightened because of it yeah yeah he's jumping around everywhere because that's the reality right. i mean he was he was yeah. horrified other than the plane crash but i think this was actually before this doctor's appointment so i mean that really just shook him up and it's the truth i mean people can't live with with what they went through especially billy being a prisoner of war As you've seen, the government has kind of had a history with withholding information from the public. This is very similar to uh, the book and Dresden, all the stuff about that. Um, one of the main things that I saw was when uh, Vonnegut was asking around for information. Um, in the book, he, he went up to the Air Force to ask about information on Dresden, and they stated that he said that he was very sorry, but that the information was top secret still. I read the letter out loud to my wife, and I said, secret, my God, from whom? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's especially interesting how this was 20 years after the fact, when he went to try to, to uncover some information, get some history on it. But no, it's like confidential information. And um, I mean... During he doesn't cover it because he was in the war, but I'm sure the media didn't really talk much about it to the public. Their their firebombing of Dresden, because it obviously gives a bad look and is a war crime. So, uh, that kind of that kind of like not hearing about the war is almost like how we don't hear about the war that's been going on our entire lives since 9/11 in the Mm -hmm. Middle East. 
And I, I couldn't even tell you where it's at. Like it's in Afghanistan is the one I the mainly heard, but who are we fighting? What, are, what is going on there? Yeah. It's the not in the era, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like, I just, I just can't tell you much detail about it because I don't hear that much about it. That goes back to that thing we were just talking about, how the media portrays it in a certain way. Like, all we know is that we're fighting terrorists to win this war for freedom. That's true. Afghanistan or Pakistan, but... Yeah, wherever it is. really know. What are we really doing there? Yeah, I mean, obviously when, when the issue is more recent, it'll get more news coverage. And sure, there's still some, some uh, coverage on it in like media now but like through the years it's faded i don't know if it's because there's not as much going on and and whatever isis is neutralized whatever they claim but uh all i know is that like one one big victories don't happen you're not hearing much mm-hmm. and that's you know like i i hadn't heard of dresden before we started this book i'd yeah, never same. heard of that same. yeah that's exactly same here <laughs> It's kind of, it's sad. It's sad on our parts, really, but, right. but, uh, maybe it's just, I mean, will that, will that be the case in the future for this Afghanistan war? Like, I'm sure there, there's like, they'll hear the big glorious things. Like one of the things we talked about is, is Osama bin Laden's, uh, assassination or killing because, you know, the founder of Al Qaeda or whatever, and they had to get that all over the news. They got to be like, Oh, American victory, this, this, this. And, you know, I remember sitting in my own basement. Uh, this was, what, how long ago was that? It was in like 20, it was in 2011. So I was like nine years old. And I still vividly remember this moment as uh, like, I was sitting there in my, in my basement watching TV. It bra- It's breaking news. So it comes on over whatever program I'm watching. And I'm sitting on a stool, I look at it, and then I go upstairs, like run upstairs, and like parade around my house screaming so happily about how Bin Laden's dead, telling my parents, like being the first to break the news, like the bearer of good news. And it was like weird how happy I was, even though I knew nothing about it. I just I just had this image implanted in me that Bin Laden, bad. America, good. Yeah, I, I kind of have a similar uh, story. Um, when I was very young too um i remember going to a friend's house to hang out and this was like around the time after his death and in their basement they had a dartboard and they'd often like print stuff out and put it on the dartboard and i remember uh like a couple days after his death they had a picture of bin laden printed out on the dartboard and we we went down his basement and we're throwing darts at him (laughs) oh my god like we what what do we know about the war to be able to do stuff like that? Like I, like that's just like literally a product of of the media, and I guess maybe our environment around us. But still, we weren't even alive. I know it's we still care about it, but we weren't alive during two thousand one, and and that's still like a moment where we look back and we're like, wow, that's what we 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 banded together. That was. Just a moment of American strength right there. But, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, every time I hear about it, I just don't really understand what's going on. I can't really comprehend it because I don't really mm-hmm. know anything about it. Yeah. Like, right. why are there still boots on the ground there? Like, are they going to take them out? Because I've heard that that being thrown around. Like, But why are we still there? And 
I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one of the um. Oh, go ahead, please. No, I was just gonna say like this is kind of you know like Dresden. Nobody really had heard of it, like we said, and they the people like still probably don't know what's going on. I mean, how remember that book that he references in his in Slaughterhouse Five? He reads a couple books about the history of Dresden uh-huh. and says how like they got destroyed before. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting for him to add that because mm-hmm. I mean, who, who would even remember that too? Like, yeah, that's true. You read that history book. So uh-huh. kind of like the way we don't really get information, it's censored and filtered by the governments that we like, we stand for and are represented by. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the research I was doing kind of behind some Afghanistan and how, what's been going on there. I found a BBC article, which itself is from 2010, which says a lot. But this this article covered nearly 90,000 leaked military records. Wow. And some, including how, quote, there were many civilian casualties and how they've gone unreported, both as a result of Taliban roadside bombs and NATO missions that went wrong. And, of course, you're not going to hear about NATO missions that went wrong. Like, this was 2010. It's been 10 years and that was ninety thousand then. Just imagine how much it is now. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of ridiculous to think about. It kind of scares me about like what kind of other stuff the government's withholding from us. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, what? But what can we do about it? That's the thing. Like, yeah. it's almost like you just have to be like I know in my project on my final project we talk about media literacy kind of just taking an angle or taking a look at all sides, knowing how to interpret and approach stories that may have a bias or may be attached to something or may just not be wanted to be uh, released to the public. So I think it's part of that, just knowing that there is stuff going on, even though we can't really explicitly see it. I think there's another important quote that I want want to talk about where um, Vonnegut says, Everybody is supposed to be dead, to never say anything or want anything ever again. Everything is supposed to be very quiet after a massacre, and it always is, except for the birds. Like, he's saying how Mm -hmm. when these things happen, these big, huge killings that people don't want to get out, like, it was helped the victory in the war, maybe a little bit, but Mm -hmm. after the war, now they don't want people to know about it. Everybody that was in there was supposed to be dead and we're supposed to move on like it never happened. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Japanese concentration camps that the Americans, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I know that, that, that the Americans actually held and maintained those. But I also still don't know much about it. Maybe it's because of my lack of research on it, but also I feel like that should be something that's taught, like learn from your fa- failures or something. Mm-hmm. So while the... The tragedies of Dresden will might likely not be on the same scale as those covered in Afghanistan. I mean, it's still very important to understand and relate the two and how the media covered them because it, it just reveals a lot about a what Kurt thought or Vonnegut thought about the war and uh, and how we should approach information about it in the modern world.
want to thank you for joining in on our discussion about the realities of war and its literary portrayal in Slaughterhouse Five. We hope you enjoyed it, and we encourage you to subscribe to us on Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Uh, I encourage you to tune into our future episodes, which will be coming out weekly from now on. And uh, also check out my own podcast about how Kansas got robbed of a national championship this year. Thank you and have a nice week.